Good morning. How you doing this morning? Great, great. Anybody, uh, you loving this winter weather we've been having? Come on. Did, <laughs> somebody down here is not happy. Did, did any of you go uh, sledding in, in the last couple of days? Yeah. Oh, man. I haven't got out there yet. How many of you brought your kids this morning just to get them out of the house? Yeah. Uh, it's been a, a wild few days here in the Midwest for those attending online. We get lots of snow. Thank you for joining from wherever you're from, unless it's Champaign, Illinois, and you're a basketball fan, and then you can tune out. But hey, uh, will you put your hands together and welcome those who are joining us live online right now? We're glad that you're here and hope you connect with God right where you're at. I am going to invite you to power on your Bible or turn in the one in the book rack to Acts chapter 9 as we kick off a new teaching series called Paul, When Mess Meets Mercy. And really, over the next four weeks together, we're going to be looking at the life of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And it's essentially who we are as a church and what the type of transformation we desire to see in people's lives. That we can actually meet and encounter the risen Christ and experience his mercy. Now, as you're turning to, in your Bibles to Acts 9, this is not going to be new to some of you who have been around the church a long time, although we're going to go a little deeper. But in the coming weeks, we're going to study some things we've never studied before and look at the long haul of Paul's life, the radical impact he makes, but also the life change that comes with that. The word mercy, we can define it uh, with a Google search as compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. In other words, someone has the authority and the ability and every right to punish or harm, and instead they choose compassion and forgiveness. That's how God's relationship is with us. And I know that, uh, I, I was thinking about an example of this. When I was in high school, I don't know if I've ever told this story here. When I was in high school, I was a sophomore, I was playing lunch basketball, and I uh, was getting really competitive, and a friend of mine was guarding me. He happened to be one of the biggest kids in the entire school, and he was pressuring me very tightly, and I did not like it, and so I, I did what anyone, anyone would have do, done, I punched him in the face. And I'm telling you, I hit him as hard as I possibly could right in the jaw. And his jaw did not budge. And then he looked at me without flinching as if, do you know what you've just done? And I am prepared. He had the ability and every right to totally destroy me in that moment. And I got to hand it to him. He was much better at handling his emotions than I was. And we made up right there. And we do what young men often do. We went right back to playing basketball and we're totally fine. But he had the ability to punish, to report me, even to harm me because he could have. And instead he chose compassion and, and grace. And, and I think that sometimes that's what we often don't understand, that mercy, that, that God had every right, biblically, ethically, that he could hold against us the sins and the wrongdoings that we have done. And so we come in here, and every single one of us, we say it all the time, that we would desire to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. No one's too far from God to experience life change through Jesus Christ. And those concepts often come from Acts chapter 9 that we're going to study today. Remind you that it is a hospital for sinners, not the morgue for sinners. 
We don't come to spiritually die. We come to change. The man we're going to study in this passage, his name is Saul. But we didn't call this series Saul. Called it Paul because he changes and becomes the person he was created to be. That's at the heart of what we're going to study. Are you ready to study God's word together, church? Come on. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Why is he breathing out murderous threats? In Acts chapter 6 and 7, they announced the, the first seven deacons of the early church to take care of the widows and the orphans there in Jerusalem within the Christian community. One of those uh, uh, young men is Stephen, who becomes one of the first deacons of the church. And because of his faith, all he's doing is helping the or orphans and widows, but because of his faith, he's actually going to be brought before the Sanhedrin, and eventually uh, the Jewish community is going to stone him to death and kill him. And it notes that Paul was present there, this young man who had been studying under a, a well-known rabbi named Gamaliel that was well-respected on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And so Paul was the up-and-coming person in society. So don't think as we talk about some of the evil in Saul's life that we're talking about people in our culture and society that we automatically go, oh, we know they're bad people. He was an upstanding individual who was well-respected in the Jewish community, and he is going to be the one who has the radical life change here. But this young up-and-coming future rabbi He's not only Jewish, he's also a Roman citizen. So he had dual citizenship that, that he is going to be the person that is ripping Christians out of their homes and imprisoning them in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter eight, verse one, it even tells us that he approved of the murder of Stephen. So, so Saul was overseeing the, the, the killing of a Christian deacon, ripping, he's a religious terrorist, ripping people out of their homes in Jerusalem and imprisoning them for their faith. And that wasn't enough. When we get to Acts chapter nine, he's now gonna go to Damascus, another town, to imprison them too. Look what happens. He's breathing out these murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he's going to have this incredible God moment. And it's not going to be the religiosity or the Bible thumping that will cause him to transform his life and his way of thinking, but it's going to be actually encountering the risen Jesus. And in that moment, as a light flashed from heaven around him, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Any of you like being told what to do? We're going to wrestle with that. Some of us, we have been Christians a while. We've had our road to Damascus moment. We've surrendered our life to Jesus, but we still have been fighting against God's direction in our life. We're going to address that. Verse seven, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. 
He has a real encounter with Jesus. And what I wanna ask you today, I know that if you've come to a place like this, you at least know about God. Many of you maybe even have given your life over to Jesus. You have received his gift of salvation. That because he was crucified and rose on the third day, anybody who surrenders their life to him can draw near to a perfect God. And you've got that concept maybe even, but do you really meet and encounter Jesus in your life? Do you go to him? Is he the one guiding and directing you? Because this passage, wherever we're at on the spiritual spectrum, forces all of us to wrestle with that concept. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for everybody here. Man, I know we ran out of chairs again at this service. And so I just, I pray Jesus that um, if they've come here, that you would just take away my words. Because God, I, I need this too. And so I pray right now, whatever you have to share with us through scripture, that we need to listen to, to, to break down the walls and barriers and boundaries in our lives to, that we would submit and hit the ground this morning, surrendering to your will for our lives. We love you, Jesus. We give you this time. We pray this in your name. And all God's family said, amen. Amen. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to actually see Jesus face to face? I get to like actually physically hang out with him. How cool would that be? Like, I always think of it, it would be like meeting a celebrity or something, right? You'd be so excited about it. Uh, but then I realized, like, I'm not really a celebrity person. I, 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 uh, I, one time, a friend of mine uh, got to go to a place where we got to meet the Colts players and stuff. He's like, are you going to get, like, autographs for your kids and stuff? And I was like, I don't know, I'm not really into that. It's not really my thing. And, and I don't know why I've never been like it. But my wife is a little different. When we were on vacation one time in the airport, uh, this one celebrity walked by, an actor named Owen Wilson, and, and she didn't see him. I don't know how she didn't see him. He had bright purple pants on. You couldn't miss him. And, and he walks by, and I didn't, I didn't do anything. I was like, oh, yeah, there's Owen Wilson. And then I, I turn around, and I'm, he's probably about 100 uh, feet down the corridor in the airport now, and I'm like, hey, honey, uh, Owen Wilson just walked by. You would have thought it was the second coming of Jesus. Like... <laughs> Her face gets like this. Like, what did you say? It's like Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson? Did you the face and the nose? You saw it? Yeah. I was like, and I pointed right down there, and she could see the bright purple pants. I've never been more embarrassed in my marriage. <laughs> she took off sprinting as fast as she could. She ran all the way down the airport. Everyone in the airport knew Owen Wilson was there, and there's this woman running after him. He gets and he somehow got to check and get right on the plane and she runs right up as he's checking in. And we didn't have iPhones at the time. She's like getting out her flip phone and trying to take pictures of him that are all blurry still because she couldn't believe he was there. And in my mind, like if I meet Jesus, it's gonna be like that. It's gonna be, oh, I can't believe he's here. But, but, but then I began to think about it. Like, you know what else happens when you meet with Jesus? Like there's this part where his compassion and grace and it's just loving kindness as a friend that we get to encounter Christ. But there's the other part of it, that when, when we meet Jesus face to face one day, we will be made aware of all the places in our lives that we have failed him. And I was, I was thinking about that and uh, remembering that sometimes like there is this guilt and the shame over the things that we've done in our life. And I, we're gonna talk about, he doesn't want us to live in that. He doesn't see us like that. But when we encounter the perfect person of Christ, it, it forces us to be confronted with that reality. When I was in uh, sixth grade, I remember um, I was supposed to study for my social studies test. 
and I didn't. And so I went into the test, but I wanted to get a good grade. And so there was like one question I didn't know on the test and it was really bothering me. So I, I did what most of you do. You sit there for like an hour thinking, oh, it's going to magically come. And it didn't come. And so then I realized the kid next to me had just transferred to school. He was new that week. And I knew that he knew the right answer. It had to do with his heritage, actually. And so he looked over at me and he kind of smiled. And I was like, uh, yeah, you're going to. And he all of a sudden leans over and he shows me the correct answer on the test. And I did what any good God-fearing young man did. I wrote the answer down and I went and handed it in. And I thought, yes, I got an A. And then I went home and I started a two week Christmas break. I'll always remember this. And for the next two weeks, I had this guilt and shame over such a seemingly small thing that I had done that had really brought some separation between me and God and me and my, my brother. And so because of that, I know that sometimes when we encounter Jesus, that feeling of the guilt and shame of the actions that we've done, it forces us to deal with that. And some of you in here are like, dude, <laughs> I've done a lot worse than cheat on a sixth grade social studies test. Hey, I've done some things. I know some of you have done some things. Some people in our community have done some things that you probably have all kinds of shame and guilt over, but mercy is that he gives you compassion and forgiveness even though you don't deserve it. So I want to talk about, as we encounter over the next four weeks, encounter Jesus, the grace and truth that comes as we encounter him. You will see it in Saul, who will become Paul's life. Every one of us in this room has our own mercy story. And what I want to tell you this morning in Acts chapter 9 is Paul's mercy story. And it really has three stages to it. Stage one, Paul's a really bad dude. He's a bad guy. There's no way around it. People may see him as a good person in their culture and society, but if you're looking through the eyes of God, he is an enemy of God. Look at verses one and two again. He's breathing out murderous threats. I'm gonna kill the Lord's disciples, the learners of the ways of Jesus. He went to the high priest even and asked him for letters in the synagogues in Damascus that if he found any belonged to the way, followers of Jesus, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Whether men or women, rip them out of their homes, away from their family. The prisons are not like today, and not that they're good today, but I'm saying it is not a pleasant thing that you wanted to experience. And, and they would rip them out of their homes simply because of their Christian faith. Paul was actually seeking out people to harm not just dealing with the sin issues or addictions or the struggles or any of that kind of stuff, simply because of their faith, not because of their actions. He's pulling them out of their homes and imprisoning them. And it doesn't stop there. In verses three and four, as he nears Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He is set on taking more Christians and taking them back to Jerusalem just to put them in prison too. Do you understand what religious terrorists, what that looks like in our culture? When we think of that of other religions, he was that for the Christian community. That's how far from God, that's how big an enemy he was of the cross of Christ. Verse four, when he sees this light flash from hand, he, he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? His only response to hearing the voice of Jesus is to hit the ground in the physical act of submission. And then the voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I love the King James Version here. 
It's what, uh, in an old Johnny Cash song, it's actually one of his last songs, in the early 2000s, a song, When the Man Comes Around. And it's talking about when Jesus returns. And it quotes this verse in the King James Version, why do you kick against the pricks? It says, why do you persecute me? But in the King James, why do you kick against the pricks? And the concept of that is totally lost for us. But in their culture, the way that you directed animals in an agricultural community was there were pricks or goads that were literally sticks that you would prick the animal with to give them direction of where to go. And if an animal didn't want to receive the direction from their master of where to go, they would kick back against it and try and stop them from doing that. And so he's saying to Saul here, why do you fight against my direction? Why do you, he wasn't just a bad guy. He was actually persecuting the church and fighting against the direction of God in his life. Anybody in here fought back or kicked back against God's direction in your life recently? Maybe it's not physically. Maybe you're not imprisoning people, but maybe it's just simply by avoiding it. Escaping into the comforts of this life, addictive habits and food and alcohol and hours of Netflix and video games and anything to escape the reality of where God is leading you in your life. Or maybe you literally physically have been fighting back against God and declaring you will never follow him and you will not pursue him. But Paul encounters Jesus. He hits his knees. And he's like, why do you keep fighting against my direction? You will never become what you were created to be if you keep fighting back, if you keep kicking against the pricks. Stage one, he has to accept his condition that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. No one can be transformed by Christ if you don't start with that act of submission in your life. Because when we encounter him, it's our only response. Stage two, now, after he realizes, yes, I'm essentially bad and he's confronted with Christ and he, he's gonna have to face the things that he's done, he then has this true, when I say encounters Jesus, he has this true moment with him. Because at first, he doesn't even know who he is. Look with me, it says, who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. At this time, he's like, I don't even understand what's going on. And for some of you, you know, one of my, my favorite uh, stories, I just saw him a moment ago, uh, of a, a friend of mine who started attending the church years ago. He was from an agnostic background, Jewish background. And he had come and for years we met and uh, never given his life to Christ. But he had begun to pray for a while and he, he, for the first time, he came to me, and he's like, Josh, I, I want to get to the point that I can totally, you know, believe in Christ and accept that he was divine, the son of God, and surrender my life to him. But I just don't know if I'll ever get there. And, you know, as we often did, he was looking for me to, to tell him how to get there. And I don't know how to get him there. Only God knows how to get him there. So I said, you've been talking and praying to him for a while. So why don't you just ask him who he is? which is what Saul does in this passage. So he, the story goes, and he'll correct me probably afterwards, but I, he, that day he was in his car. He's about to go into Dick's Sporting Goods. And he prayed, God, if Jesus, if you're who I've been talking to and you are really the son of God and uh, divine, then, then make it apparent to make it clear to me that who it is I'm praying to. And he prayed that prayer. He gets out of his car. He goes into Dick's Sporting Goods. 
And the song in the register as he was checking out was a song by Fatboy Slim. Uh, Praise him. Praise him like I should. And he just about one of the tears came to his eyes checking out of Dick's Sporting Goods that God chose to speak to him to a song about you can praise me because I am the son of God that you've been praying to. See, when you encounter him, it's one thing to learn about him. When you encounter him, it's life-changing. There's no more I believe cognitively in my head and I attend this service like this out of a nostalgic thing because my parents and grandparents did. It's because I have a relationship with him. It it changes everything. And see, this doesn't just stop after salvation, by the way. For for each of us, there's this moment where we, we call him in our discipleship huddles, kairos moments, where where, where God breaks through time. The Greek word for time most often is chronos, which is linear time. But kairos is another word for time, and it's an appointed time where God breaks through the chronos, breaks through time itself to speak to you about something in your life, to change something, to have a different direction. And you can choose whether to kick against the pricks, against his direction, or you can submit and receive it and hit the ground and say, Lord, who are you? What do you want me to do? I will do it. An encounter with Christ, only only life change comes, only will we become more like Christ, more like Jesus, when we have this act of submission in that moment, rather than pushing back, when we put the barriers and boundaries and walls down, that we can actually encounter Jesus and have that type of relationship with him. It means you have to escape sometimes to pray before you make decisions. It means sometimes that you have hard things that you're working through in your life that you want to solve and fix, but you need to spend less time trying to solve it and more time praying to the one who can. That's what an encounter with Christ, a relationship with him looks like. He goes on, now look what he does because of that verse six. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. Now I got to imagine that if he hadn't really encountered Jesus yet, he probably would not have budged but he will. He will go and he will submit now. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. He's going to go blind for three days and he'll end up at a guy's house named Ananias. And God is going to use Ananias to help Saul fully understand everything. And the scales will fall from his eyes. But in this passage, He had to get up, and the way that he is rewarded for now having encountered Jesus was what? Did you catch it? He went blind. We often tell people, give your life to Christ. It's going to be amazing. You're going to go to heaven when you die. Really good stuff. Streets of gold, awesome. We don't tell people, and all that's true, by the way, right? We get to go to heaven when we die. We experience him fully in our life. Really amazing, great stuff. But we don't tell people that in some ways, God is going to make your life harder. Step stage three in Paul's life, Jesus totally ruins his life. This is a new concept. I've shared this before. But I think it's really important that we don't preach enough in the American church. That when Jesus comes in, he doesn't make him healthy, wealthy, and wise. He totally wrecks his life. There is a complete destruction of what was there. He was somebody in society. He gives all of that up starts at ground zero, and he's going to have to sacrifice him repeatedly in his life. Look what happens. He doesn't just go blind. Uh, Look at verse nine now. In verse nine, after he's going to go to Damascus, he's blind for three days. He was blind and did not, what? 
eat or drink anything. No water for three days. You can't live much longer. By the time he gets to Ananias' house, he's on the brink of death with no water in his system. God didn't make his life easier. He made it harder, but it was worth it. When it comes to following Christ, sacrifice, yes, you're going to go to heaven. Yes, you're going to experience eternal life, and you get to experience the Spirit of God in our life now. And the, the, the Spirit of God is no longer in a building behind the temple curtain, the most holy of holies. That curtain was torn in two. If you give your life to Christ and receive the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is with you. And please hear me. If you're in the time of needing comfort, His Spirit will groan for you when you can't utter a word, Romans 8, 26. If you need that great comforter, if you need the Prince of Peace, He is available to sustain you for whatever you're going through. But do not think that's because your life is going to get easier. Saul will end up in a prison cell and write to the church in Philippi with great joy. How can you write when you are in prison because of your faith? How can you write with great joy? Because of their partnership in the gospel, it says. Because his joy was no longer contingent on the environment and the story he found himself in. His joy came from Christ alone. Receiving and accepting that Jesus is going to totally transform your life means you have to know that I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to do whatever it takes to become the person you want me to be, God. And that's the hard part. And it's really the point this morning, that act of submission, of reclaiming who you are in Christ, that he is no longer Saul. He is now Paul. He is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He no longer lives for his selfish desires and for himself. He doesn't live for money, sex, and power like the rest of the world. He lives for one reason, his audience of one, his heavenly father, because of the work of Jesus, the spirit of God in his life, he wants to be used by him. He wants to totally start over. Let me get a little deeper. You don't believe me? Look what Paul himself wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23b. This is what happens to Paul's life because he follows Jesus. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one because the 40th was thought to kill you. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches." You know, something I prayed for years, and I think this holds up theologically, but I, I prayed, God, make, make me, make my family dangerous in you. And most of the time, we, we want to pray for God to protect us, and I pray those prayers too. But God, make us dangerous for you, because we only get one life. And most of us spend this life building our own personal empires, trying to achieve, trying to accomplish the things Saul was rather than the person Paul became. 
And as we close out our time, I want you to wrestle, okay, what does this look like in our areas of life? How does it actually make our lives harder as we try and live for him? Think about it this way, because if you want redemption like Paul, you have to start letting Jesus fully ruin and wreck your life. It makes your life harder sometimes, not easier. In fact, if you're like in the dating world, you know, anybody out there, you're dating, you're looking for that special someone, you're going to find them. But the problem is now you're a follower of Jesus. So now you have to try and honor him in your dating life way easier before. You get on that Tinder app, baby, you can find whatever you want and you had no repercussions, right? And we teach people that's a part of the human condition. That's the way we are in our culture. But now you're a follower of Jesus. So you want to live and honor him in your life. You don't want to live in the sexual sin of your past. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body, that now you have to surrender. It's always this act of surrendering and submission. Surrender that area of your life to him. And let me break it to you. You're probably not gonna be perfect. And you're gonna have to surrender and submit all over again and hit your knees again. And ask for forgiveness. And here's the beautiful thing. When his mercy meets your mess, he will forgive you every time. It's a beautiful thing. His mercy does not end. But, but, again, we're the hospital for sinners, not the morgue for sinners, right? We don't come here to spiritually die. We come here to heal and become whole and become more like Christ wants us to be, be. And that means that sometimes in those areas of our life that we're struggling in, we have to submit all over to him again. This act of humility, it doesn't end when you give your life to Christ. Paul will do that throughout his life, and we'll look at that in the coming weeks. If you're struggling with greed, you always have money for yourself, but not for others. Matthew 18, 22 says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come and follow me. I did not make that man's life easier. Now, let me hear, uh, hear this. Uh, I don't believe everybody needs to sell everything and, and do what's happening here, but, but Jesus knew for this man that was gonna be the one thing that would keep him from becoming the person God wanted him to be, that he, he was gonna struggle with generosity. So in every aspect of our life, if there's something that's getting in the way of what the Lord wants to do, it means we have to surrender and submit that to him all over again. Why? Because we're not living for here and now. Now we've been changed and we wanna become the person God wants us to be. As we close out, I want to show you a video. And, uh, you know, it, it's about three minutes and 48 seconds long, a little longer than I would typically show. And there's even a, a line in there that, you know, uses even some bad language. But I, I'm left it in there because I want you to see what this person was like. And, and I'll tell you that uh, many of you probably are familiar with Johnny Cash, but for some of the younger generation, he was somebody in the the 50s and 60s was like one of the greatest uh, rock stars that there was, both in country and in carryover rock and roll. And, and he, uh, later in life, he, he married his, his, after other failed marriages, uh, he married his wife, June Carter, who was a Christian, and he ended up becoming a Christian. And in his later years, his last album, when the man comes around that album, he did a cover of a song by Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. And uh, Trent Reznor wrote a song called Hurt, which was about uh, heroin and drug addiction. And, and he took that song, Johnny Cash did, and put the emphasis more on his Christian faith. 
and the things that he had done in his life that he wished that he wouldn't, wouldn't have. And he had spent his life differently in certain areas. And yet how thankful he is for what Christ has done in him. And I see the analogy to this passage we've been reading so much. For some of you out there, that if you've been building the wrong empire, if you have been living for the wrong things, or you've been a Christian a long time, but you have not been hearing from God and encountering him, I want to give you the opportunity to say, I'm going to change this morning. Let's watch this three and a half minute video together, and then we'll close out. Rather than living for his empire of dirt, if he could find a way to find himself again, to keep himself, that's what he would have done. And he, he did. He, he found a life in Christ. And Paul, in this passage, he, he's not going to be Saul anymore. He's going to become Paul. He's going to be a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. He knew his identity. He found a way to say, this is what I am. This is what I'm going to become. I'm not going to live for my empire anymore, for the things people in the society thought, for the Sanhedrin and what they wanted him to do. He wasn't going to live for being known for the young up-and-coming man that was studying on the Rabbi Gamaliel. He was going to be known as a follower of Jesus, and that was going to make his life harder rather than easier. But he was going to stop kicking against the pricks and fighting back against God's direction in his life. And some of us, we have been fighting way too long and we have known about him, but we haven't encountered him because we don't live for him. This week, we're laying the foundation for this entire series that if you want to have your own mercy story, it has to start with exactly what Saul did in this passage with complete and utter submission. He falls on the ground in front of Jesus because he doesn't know how to respond. He does what he asks and is obedient to what he's calling. He believes and receives his mercy and compassion in that moment, and he will become a person who changes the world because of it over time. And what I want to invite you to do, if you've been a Christian for a while, but you have not been encountering Jesus lately, you've been avoiding him, you haven't been listening to his voice. If some of you are here and you've never heard his voice and you feel shame about that, you don't need to. Sometimes it's hard to discern what the Lord is saying to you, but you stick with it and you bring wise Christian counsel around you and you study scripture and you ask God to speak to you about the things in your life. And now you're not alone anymore on how to make decisions and how to live. You can take the time to reach out to him and to hear from him. But it starts with that humility of submitting to he knows best. I'm not gonna fight back against his direction in my life. And then for some of you here, I'm gonna imagine, if we're being real, you've known about Jesus for a while, but you have never encountered him. And if he was to speak to you in this moment, you would be like, who are you, Lord? I wanna tell you that the Bible tells us in Romans 10, 9, that if you confess Jesus as Lord with your lips, that you will be saved. There's nothing you can do to earn his salvation. You don't have to live in the shame and the guilt of your past and your previous decisions anymore because when your heavenly father looks at you, he sees the atoning sacrifice of his son, Jesus, and you've been made new. And for the rest of life, he's not gonna hold this over your head, but you have to have the humility to hit your knees and call out to God and admit your condition before him. And so I want to give each of us the opportunity to respond to God's word this morning. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray first for the Christian in the room who's been around you and heard about you and lived for you, but has not been encountering you, has not been listening to your Kairos moments in their life.
God, we bring our walls and barriers down. Speak to us, God. We want to hear from you. We want to encounter you. We want to be obedient to you. We want to become the people you created us to be. Start the process, this four weeks of transforming us. And then for the people in the room right now, that you know you need to give your life over to Christ. He has been calling you for a while, but you've been avoiding it, and it's time to believe and receive the free gift of salvation. I invite you to pray this silently as I pray it out loud. God, I confess that I need you. Forgive me for not following you in my life. I believe and receive your, your mercy and forgiveness now, and I surrender everything in my life to your Lordship. Use me, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name and all God's family said. Amen. Amen.